Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Lewis Cohen, Investment Director from Tilney's London office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about bond and equity markets, monetary and fiscal policy, and their impact on the global economy. We're recording this podcast from our homes today on Wednesday, the 7th of April. But before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or a recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So, Ben, perhaps we could start our discussion with a look back over the first quarter of the year. Absolutely. Thank you, Lewis. Uh, So the first quarter, I think, really could be described and characterised as a recovery rally. And this is really a continuation of the theme, actually, from from November last year. But it has had a few nuances uh, mixed in there. Generally speaking, risk assets, particularly equity, oil, those those type of assets have gained, whilst perceived safe havens have weakened. And that generally means government bonds and gold. In fact, it's that latter move that's been the real focus for Q1, quite a significant sell-off in core government bonds. And the way we tend to to look at bonds we've talked about before is in terms of yield, yield moves in the opposite direction to price. So when we say yields have gone up, that means prices have fallen. And we tend to look at 10-year bonds. They're very often used as a suitable benchmark. So if you look at what's happened in the UK, 10-year gilt yields started the year very low, flirting with zero, and they started at 0.17%, and then they closed most recently at 0.8%. So that's 0.63 or 63 basis points of movement. Similarly, in the US, US Treasury started at 0.991 and got up to 1.66, which is 75 basis points. And that may not sound a lot, but it is an awful lot when it comes to, to government bonds, and those tend to get multiplied up. Uh, when you have when you have the 10 year. So if you look at the actual movement we've seen on those bonds, it's been of the order of sort of four to six percent, which is quite a lot for what is traditionally a very low, low volatility asset class. The other classic safe or perceived safe haven uh, asset is, of course, gold. Gold is off 8.2 percent this year. Remember, it had a very strong bounce last year. It's given some of that back as well. Uh, really in sympathy with those movements in core government bonds. Uh, And when we look at at commodities, what goes down in terms of gold goes up in terms of oil. The oil price is up 22% for the year so far. Um, And if we look at equities, of course, those have been powering ahead. Those are your classic risk on asset classes, led really by Europe, which last time uh, I looked, European equities up just under 12% the year so far. US equities up around 9%, UK up 6%, and emerging markets up 4%. And all of that ties in with this theme of general recovery. That's when you see people move away from, from areas of relative safety into areas they think will power ahead uh, over, over the next couple of years. But I think within that, what, what isn't entirely clear as well is some of the sector rotation. 
what we've seen is some of the winners from last year, particularly those stay-at-home trade, a lot of the technology stocks and the consumer staples, those have been laggards. And the areas that have done well over the last quarter have really been some of those more value-tilted areas, the areas that tend to do well when economies recover, particularly sectors such as energy and financials. Um, and also mixed in with that, some of the value stocks that got beaten up last year uh, have recovered a bit more than, than the growth stocks. So I think there's been a bit of a whipsawing uh, around in markets, but really the theme has been recovery. We've seen that in the headline numbers for asset classes, but also some of the, the winners and losers within those themes. Thanks, Ben. Um, if I could just uh, take us back to those bond markets. And, and as you say, those price movements have been quite significant. Uh, and we don't normally see such big sort of movements on a on a regular basis. So from a allocation perspective and maybe just a, a sort of fund management perspective, was that something we're concerned about? And perhaps you could tell the our, our listeners how we're mitigating that risk in our portfolios. Absolutely. And as I said, the, the movements in bond markets have really been driving lots of other asset classes. Very often you, you'll hear uh, government bonds described as the risk free rate. Not strictly speaking true because there are there are elements within that, but it's often used as a benchmark and a lot of other asset prices directly or indirectly price off that. And as we see those movements in government bonds, it has had an impact uh, very broadly. And of course, a lot of our portfolios have to hold bonds as part of their mandate. It's a very widely used part uh, fixed income in particular is, is a widely used super asset class as an offset for equities in a diversified multi-asset portfolio. And as those moves have come through, it has had a few implications. I think one of the things that, that's just worth touching on, though, we often talk about the 10-year government bond as our benchmark. But of course, there's lots of different bonds within that. And one of the areas that's been very interesting is the difference between short-term bonds and longer-term bonds. So whilst 10-year government bonds have sold off quite dramatically, two-year government bonds have barely moved. And that's because most uh, or the implication is most market participants think that interest rates in the long term will have to rise. But central banks have been very clear short term rates are likely to be pinned to the floor. They've talked about continued support for markets. So that's meant you've had this big movement in the longer end, whilst the short end has been has been pinned down. That's led to a very steepening, uh, a very significant steepening of yield curves. That's helped areas like banks. That's had a very specific impact in terms of equities. But what it means for, for bonds themselves is we remain fairly wary, as we have done over the last few months, of too much exposure to those, those core interest rates. And that's really embedded in, in what we call uh, interest rate duration. The 10-year interest rate duration is something we're trying to mitigate. Um, and I think there's several reasons for that. We're seeing rising inflation expectations coming through around the fringes as well. We've talked about it before. Some concerns may be around these bond vigilantes. This idea that you can borrow infinite amounts because borrowing costs are so very low. Well, at some point, the market turns around and starts exactly as a bank would. The more you start borrowing, they start raising the, the rates in aggregate. And, and bond markets work in a similar fashion. And that's why I think you've seen some of the, these impacts with, for example, the Chancellor trying to, to paint a, a balanced budget approach on the medium term. And I think as we start to move towards fiscal expansion, there's further risks that we do see those longer term interest rates start to rise. So I think it makes sense in a strategy perspective to have less exposure to those nominal 
interest rates nominal longer term duration. And there's several different mechanisms to do that, a number of which we've been deploying uh, across, across our mandates. One approach is to focus on the shorter duration. So as I said, the longer end, those bonds maturing in six, seven, eight, nine, ten years that are moving the most. If you move to the shorter end where we have a little bit more clarity over the central bank's intention, that limits your exposure to those sharp sell-offs. Another way we, we can be play, we can play that is through inflation protected securities. So in, in certain mandates, we have exposure to US Treasury inflation protected securities. And there it's mitigating against the movement in those interest rate expectations, because it's both the, the real yield expectations and the inflation expectations that move those rates. So um, by isolating out changes in inflation, that could be another, another method. And of course, using credit exposure. So when you buy uh, assets such as corporate bonds, which is the debt, debt of, of companies, you have what's effectively the, the interest rate underlying, and then you have a spread on top that's the, the, that's the credit spread. And that comes with another source of risk that you do need to do need to focus on as well. But it helps mitigate some of those interest rate moves. So what the, the strategies that we're advocating is less in that those full duration uh, assets like government bonds using a bit more in credit, uh, lower durations and potentially some inflation protection as well. Um, they are relatively nuanced, but it is important to get that right, I think, in the fixed income part of your portfolio. That's great. Th thanks for that, Ben. Um, just in, in that uh, very, very interesting sort of summary there, you mentioned interest rate expectations and inflation uh, expectations as well. Uh, and those are the main levers that are driving that on market yield. Um, just should we be concerned as investors regarding inflation, uh, especially when we look at US core inflation over the last sort of decade or so that has failed to meet the Fed Reserve's 2% target? It's definitely something worth thinking about and should always be factored in. And I think you're exactly right, because we haven't had sustained meaningful inflation for the best part of a decade. I worry that some investors might might underappreciate just how, how, how much inflation over the medium term, medium term can erode returns. So it's something to think about and factor into how we consider markets. And as we have talked about before, it's been in our thinking really since the, the back end of last year. And I think inflation is likely to tick up. A lot of that is actually already in those expectations. And as I think we talked about last month, it's less relevant looking at the year-on-year -year change in, in headline CPI. That's driven by all of the, the, the base effects from, from what happened to oil prices last year. And I wouldn't even worry too much about headline. As you said, it's core inflation, and that's what central banks focus on. And as we, we look at markets today, inflation expectations have actually moved quite, quite noticeably. We can look at, in, in the UK, for example, there are ways to measure what the forecast or what the market expects RPI, so retail price index inflation will be over the period ahead. And that's what the market uses because that's what's still bound into some of those inflation protected bonds. And at the moment, 10-year uh, RPI inflation is now expected to average about three and a half percent. And if you roughly take off around a percent to adjust for CPI, that gives you around about two and a half percent CPI inflation the market expects to average over the next 10 years. And that's important for several reasons. Firstly, you can compare that inflation uh, expectation with what the yield on the 10-year government bond is, which is 0.78, which means actually if that inflation comes through, 
your real yield on 10-year government bonds is going to be minus 1.7. And the more that moves, the, the greater the impact that can have uh, in, terms of, in terms of headline bonds. I think for us, though, the concern is not necessarily rising inflation, because I think that that is now largely in the price. What is What we're looking for is to make sure that central banks don't lose control of the situation. Now, as we've highlighted before, central banks have, have signaled a willingness to allow inflation to run a little bit hot before they'd intervene. And what would historically happen, as soon as inflation started picking up, central banks would start to get worried and markets would worry in turn about that worry. And you see bonds start to move quite significantly. That's why all of the commentary from central banks has been acknowledging the higher inflation but not worrying about it. And the code phrases that we hear from central banks uh, are phrases such as a symmetrical inflation target. What that really means is because it's been so low for so long, they might let it run a little bit high. Average inflation targeting as well is basically saying because it's been so low, they might let it run a little bit hot. It's also in their interest as well to let it run hot just so they can retain or, or get back some of that, that credibility. So I think upside inflation is uh, is a risk. We have been positioned for a rising inflationary backdrop. And actually, it's, a, it's about the speed rather than the absolute magnitude that, that we should be focused on. Um, if it drifts up slightly over the next 10 years, I think that's something that's entirely manageable. Um, you tend to get a lot of pass through uh, of that inflation in elements such as equities, and we can look at other real asset classes, and that can be baked in on the medium term. What would concern us more is if you see a very sharp, uh, a rapid increase in inflation expectations, then the worry would be that central banks end up behind the curve, inflation could start eroding those long-term returns, and central banks might have to intervene more sharply. So I don't think that rising, gently rising inflation um, towards target and then slightly ahead of target is necessarily something to worry about. That's been when well signaled. And that's something that we've positioned our investment strategies for and are, and, and are largely expecting. It's if we see any evidence of that starting to run away, the Fed starting to get behind the curve and it's significantly accelerating, that would be more of a concern uh, and we'd probably have to take action. But as it stands, gently rising infl inflation could well be argued as, as a positive development for, for economies that, as you've said, have really struggled to achieve meaningful inflation. And the key difference this time could well be fiscal stimulus. That's what's been missing for the last decade. Thanks for that. Um, just uh, I'm sort of talking about fiscal stimulus a bit more, I think. Um, we always like to draw parallels to things that have happened in the past. And, and the last time, I suppose, for, for many of us that we saw significant of, uh, increase in money supply, as well as aggr aggressive government spending, was probably Japan, when we saw Abenomics being promoted in 2013 and forwards. Uh, obviously, we've discussed in the past and you've discussed about the dwindling impact of monetary policy and how we need significantly more fiscal policy. We've now had a bit of more time over the weekend to digest the detail in President Biden's sort of build back plan. Could you could we arguably say this is the real move to fiscal policy or are we still just sort of around the edges? Well, I, I think it depends what, what your benchmark is uh, in the US in particular. This is probably a, a much needed fiscal stimulus. And it is, I think, just the start. And the contrast I draw is so far what we've had is, is President Biden announcing around tr $2 trillion um, over, uh, over the best part of a decade, actually. And that compares with 
1.9 trillion COVID relief that, that we've had. But again, it's a, it's a point we've highlighted before, but it is an important one to talk about. What we've had up until now is largely not fiscal stimulus. You could argue it, it's, it's fiscal substitution for an economy that, that's been in lockdown. Now, we'll have a, a, a small, well, quite probably quite a significant short-term impact, largely from those, those fiscal stimulus checks landing in people's accounts. They can then spend that once they're allowed back into, uh, back into the, the broader private economy. And that could be something that we see here in Europe and, and the UK. The US actually is slightly further ahead in terms of, of its recovery because it opened, it opened its, its economy a little bit sooner, whereas the UK and Europe is taking a more cautious stance. So we tend to look to the US from that regard. But you're right in that to sustain, I think, the next economic cycle, not only do we need fiscal stimulus, we need it in the right places. And a lot of that is in areas such as infrastructure. And a lot of that is this attempt to, to, to build back greener. So $2 trillion is, is a reasonable amount. Um, I think as long as it's targeted in the right areas, and as we've seen a lot of the green projects and required infrastructure is, is the right element. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little bit of more of that broadening out, uh, broadening out from the US. And it's targeted, as we said, in the right areas. I think what is important, though, is that there's two particular elements of the announcement we've had thus far. And remember, it's expected this is only half of, of the package that he's he's already promised on the, the campaign trail. This is focused on infrastructure. We're expecting more of a similar magnitude around areas such as healthcare and potentially child support. But the other element that, that's come out uh, around the same time, we had Joe Biden, and then we had the previous Fed chair, uh, Janet Yellen, talking about this drive to have a global minimum tax. A lot of that is, is targeted areas such as uh, well-known tech firms have been able to take advantage uh, of relatively sophisticated structures to minimise tax. And there's this push globally to make sure that, that, that a fair level of tax is paid as well. And I think that ties in with this neutralisation idea. And that actually relates to what we talked about a little bit earlier about bond vigilantes. If you just start announcing fiscal expenditure uh, like it's printing free money, at some point the markets will turn will turn against you. And I think it's interesting, just from what we heard with President Biden, he announced two trillion of infrastructure spending that came hand in hand with about the same amount of projected uh, fiscal um, or increased tax in order to pay for that. And that's been lumbered on corporations. So US corporation tax is going up from 21 to 28%. There's also some other loopholes and allowances being closed. So I think what we're likely to see is more of this. We saw it, we've seen it thus far in the US. There's been hints of it as well in the UK. And that is a spend now, but it will be paid for and it will be neutralized. And it's that careful balance to make sure that, it, that it's hitting the right areas that won't choke off the economic recovery that will be interesting to, to get right. But I think fiscal stimulus, as you say, is needed. It's been missing outside of the US for the best part of a decade. So it will need to come through. But I think we do need to be wary of those bond vigilantes. So it'll need to be calibrated. It'll need to be going to the right parts of the economy that can achieve sustainable economic growth rather than one-off impacts, impact the real economy rather than just the accumulation of wealth. And there will need to be some level of neutralization um, just to try and keep borrowing costs under control. That's great. Thanks, Ben. Um, you, you mentioned just at the end of that that you you know we're talking about sus sustainable growth and obviously the spend now to drive sort of economic recovery. 
and, and th those of you who sort of look at these things, last March, the World Economic Outlook that was published by the IMF is now projecting global growth around about 6% in 2021. That's much stronger than their predictions in 2020. And I guess that upward revision is a reflection of the fiscal support in these larger economies that we're seeing, uh, as well as the vaccine-powered recovery in the second half of 2021. So with that in mind, and the continued adaptation of activity compared to our subdued mobility, as we're all sitting in our homes still, um, how do we subscribe to this notion of sort of stronger growth and, and, and sort of coming back to where we sort of started with the equity markets? What would you see the impact on equity markets being from this? Well, I, I think the equity market impact is nuanced, and that's the important element. All of this stimulus we had from March last year has meant a lot of good news is already in the price. And as that stimulus is withdrawn, we'll need to be able to carefully manage that. I think that the, the projections from the IMF and others, part of it is genuinely higher growth achieved through fiscal stimulus that wasn't expected. In the US in particular, that's because at the start of the year, or certainly in November, sorry, we weren't expecting the blue wave of the, the Democrats taking um, all, all three main elements of, of the legislature and executive. Um, because after the November elections, it didn't look like the Democrats would take the Senate. And it wasn't until we had the, the runoff uh, for those two Senate seats in January that, that became a strong likelihood. And that does tend to mean more fiscal stimulus overall. The other side of that, though, is some of this could be sequencing. Um, and I think what you may see is because a lot of this stimulus is front loaded, there's been a lot of stimulus checks in the short term, particularly in the US, but there is this likelihood with the Democrats in in control, that you'll have higher taxes more broadly later on. It could be some of that growth is taken from the future by providing more stimulus now and some headwinds potentially further down the road. And how that plays out crucially will depend on how much the market is able to take it in its stride insofar as withdrawing stimulus in the face of, of economic strength is normally considered a positive. Economic strength tends to flow through to, to fundamentals in equity markets, and I think that will be expected. If it's withdrawn and it perhaps turns out that the economic growth is less robust than people thought, then that could become a little bit more of a worry. So we'll need to see how those, those numbers move. And the way to do that, of course, is to, is to, to track forward earnings expectations for this year, more importantly, next year and the year after. And as we see those earnings expectations start to rise, that could be our, our crucial signal. But I think it will be interesting to see what happens when that stimulus is withdrawn, because just as the saying goes around, a rising tide lifts all boats. And as Warren Buffett famously said, uh, it's only when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. And I think from our investment point of view, you want to make sure you're invested with those companies that can thrive through multiple economic environments and aren't entirely reliant on that stimulus. And that's why I think the recovery will be more selective. As we said at the top, even over the last six months, whilst the headline numbers haven't looked all, all that surprising, it's been the change in, in sector leadership and some of that rotation. And I think just goes to show that the, the way to generate returns in these markets, hopefully, is less about considering broad markets, but it's about being selective and making sure you're exposed to the right parts of the market. Thanks. Um, I suppose just finally, just a sort of final question really from me, but um, at the beginning, when you looked at the market review, we mentioned, or you mentioned that gold was off eight, just over 8%, 8.2% I've written down here since the start of the year. And um, I suppose my question is, and I know 
other investors will be thinking about this is that how do you see the impact of the global eco economic recovery having on the gold price and gold in particular if we do see a decline in risk and volatility? I, I think gold has has a few uses in portfolios. You're, you're right, it's, cut, it's, it's softened off this year. It had a very strong year last year. I think gold can perform several functions in a portfolio. If you tend to have rising inflation, gold can do well in that environment. But most importantly, what gold tends to be correlated with is, is real yields. So that's government difference between inflation uh, and government bonds. And I think if you start to see inflation ticking up, that central banks, as we expect, stick to their guns on will keep monetary policy loose, then rising inflation with, uh, with nominal interest rates being held steady basically means falling real yields, and that's a positive environment for, for gold. I think the other aspect as well is when you see central banks start printing money, effectively debasing global fiat currencies, that can benefit gold as well, because you can't print any more gold. So if you're debasing all currencies globally, that can benefit gold uh, effectively as, as a finite and, and real asset. And I think what we've seen over the last 10 years, you know, it, it has been a, a little bit lackluster, but global economic growth has been pretty reasonable, all things considered, post-global financial crisis. But we didn't have central banks hiking interest rates. We had several rounds of quantitative easing, each one giving slightly less uh, benefit than the previous round. So I think when, when we have inflation already risen quite high, and I think real yields are, are relatively negative, but I think that they're sort of on, on, on the cusp of what markets expect government bonds to do. The very strong investment case from last year is a little bit more diminished. But that said, on a forward-looking basis, if we do think inflation could move higher uh, and governments are, or central banks are likely to keep interest rates um, on hold in the short term, I think that could still be a positive environment. And I think that the go-to for central banks now is to open the QE taps, and they've been very willing to do that in the sign of any wobbles at all. So I think gold still has a, a strong place in the portfolio, albeit the very strong attraction from last year. A lot of that investment case has been realised, so it is an area to keep a close eye on, I think. Well, well thank you, Ben, as always, for your time and your commentary. Um, we will be back again soon with a new episode, but if you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. And thank you for listening.